Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. For all of us, it's an uncomfortable and challenging subject because I think we have very mixed feelings about it. I mean, I think if you look at bookshops, if you look at what's on television, if you look at the commemorations of wars, I think there is a fascination of war among publics, um, a fascination with, with fighting, a fascination with what happens during war. That doesn't mean we necessarily admire it, but I think it is something that we are, as a, as a, as a people around the world, often very much interested in. And if you teach history, as I do, I teach modern history, it's almost impossible to avoid coming across the subject of war because the last century was marked by two great wars and a great many other wars, and they helped to shape society. And so I think the context is, is I think, just the general interest we have. And I think we're both attracted and, and repulsed by war. I mean, I think our feelings are very mixed. The reason I wrote this book more specifically is because I was asked by the BBC about three years ago now to give the Reese Lectures, which was both a tremendous shock, I wasn't expecting it, and a tremendous honor. And I wanted to think what I would, would, would talk about. And I didn't want to talk about things that I'd talked about elsewhere, um, the outbreak of, of the First World War, for example, or the end of the First World War. And I thought, why not talk about war? Because as I say, it's something that I think, like a lot of people, I've been very interested by. And so I undertook to do five lectures and we decided I wouldn't do a complete history of war. That wouldn't have been, I think, possible. And it wouldn't have been interesting. So what I did is look at different aspects of war. One of them clearly is, is whether we are doomed as a species to fight wars. We have fought an awful lot in our history, and we're continuing to fight them around the world today as I speak. And so that was a question. I mean, there's a huge debate about this and, and a very interesting one. And then another part of the lectures was about war and human society, which comes first? It's an interesting question. Does organized society come first or does war come first or do they, do they develop together? Can we see war as something that has pushed the development of human society in certain ways? Can we even see war as something that has benefited human society? It's, it's a complicated and again, an awkward question, but a lot of the changes in societies have come about as a result of war. On the other hand, and again, I think this is a huge and, and interesting question, certain societies fight certain sort of wars. Are some societies more likely to fight wars than others? And how important is culture? Not, not culture just in the narrow sense of, of, of the arts, but culture in the sense of the sets of values and assumptions that a particular society shares. And so I wanted to explore those questions. I, I became very interested in why people fight. Why do nations fight? Why do groups of people fight? And why do individuals fight? Because the reasons may not always be the same. And why is it that people are prepared to go into a situation where they know that they might lose their lives and they might have to take the lives of other people? And these, are, again, I think are things which we, we puzzle about and, and we're fascinated by. I became interested in, in the whole issue of gender in war. Why is it that something like 99.9% .9 of warriors through history, as far as we can see, have been men? There are examples of women who have fought, and, and there are more women today in armed forces around the world than, than ever before. But why has it traditionally been men? And then I think I ended, um, there's no end to this, but I, I ended my lectures with how our cultures, in the narrower sense, in the arts, how do our cultures deal with war? How do writers, how do artists, how do musicians try and deal with, with the horror and the complexity of war? And again, how does war affect 
what artists, writers, filmmakers, and so on will do. And how do we remember war? Because those who create the artistic productions of war, those who write the books, those who create the memorials, those who, who make the movies about war are also helping us to remember it. How do we commemorate and remember war? And so the book grew out of lectures and then it took me to some two years to actually write the book. And of course I got interested in, in all sorts of other subjects and I found myself learning more than you probably want to hear about, about how the crossbow worked or about um, laws of war was another subject I became fascinated by, how have we attempted to control war. It's a huge subject, and of course I only touched a fraction of it, but I hope what I did was raise enough questions that people who, who, who are interested in the subject will ask the questions themselves and, and be tempted to read more. And there is a very rich and, and very interesting literature on war. There's a huge debate among archaeologists, among anthropologists, among those who look at the long evolution of human society, there is violence, as far as we can tell, back very far in human society. I mean, we have found, or archaeologists and, and others have found, ancient skeletons which show signs of having been beaten violently, having their heads smashed, um, signs of, of dying, of, of the trauma of something or some other person attacking them. But violence isn't war. War is, is organized violence, and the organizational part of it is very important indeed. War is groups of people doing things to other groups of people. It's not just, war is not just the sort of fight you get outside a bar when two people lose their tempers and, and start you know, punch, taking swinging punches at each other. War takes a good deal of preparation, a good deal of thought, a good deal of organization. And as far as we can tell, and I, it's very much, I think, still an open question, but the consensus so far among anthropologists and those who study the, the far past of, of human history is that war seems to have become an organized feature of human society as we began to settle down from being hunter-foragers to becoming agriculturalists. And the reason for that seems to have been, and I have to keep saying seems to have been because we don't know for sure a lot of this, but this is sort of a speculation which seems to be backed up by what evidence there is, that as we settled down, it became more difficult to flee those who, who might be hostile to us. I mean, if you, when, you, when you are an agriculturalist, you can't just pick up your animals and, and, and your possessions and, and, and flee into, into, into the distance. You, you stay there because you've got something to defend and you've also got something that people want to talk. And so possibly 10,000 years ago, roughly when peoples began to settle down, began to engage in agriculture, perhaps we saw the beginnings of war. And from that point onwards, we have seen war as a way of defending what you have, and of course, as a way of taking what others have. And the more organized you are about it, the more chance you have of protecting yourselves and the more chance you have of, of taking over others. And so it seems to be that during this long period, um, after, after the, the, the settlement of people into agricultural settlements, the organization of society and increasingly the differentiation of different peoples in society, for example, between those who did the farming and those who were supported by the farmers and who became the warriors or became the rulers or became the priests or became the scholars, that seems to have gone hand in hand with our capacity to make war. And so whether the organized state came first or whether war came first is probably an impossible question. They seem to have developed literally hand in hand um, along with each other, intertwined throughout history. Well, I think there are two aspects of human nature that perhaps lead us to fight each other. There is one that we probably have 
genetically, um, a propensity to fear those who aren't like us and a propensity to lash out. I mean, our closest cousins in the animal world are the chimpanzees, and they've been very thoroughly studied in the last decades. And it seems to be that chimpanzees will support each other, they will care for each other, but they will attack those they fear from outside, others who, who may smell different or come from, from a different part of the landscape. And they will also, I mean, there is evidence that chimpanzee will organize themselves into parties who patrol their borders and who will kill and attack anyone who comes from outside. Now that I think is, is probably something we have as well, this instinctive fear of others and something that we will lash out when we're afraid. But that's not war, again. Um, our, our ability to commit violence may be part of war, but our ability to commit violence has been controlled over the centuries. And war is, is the application of controlled violence. And often, in fact, it's very difficult to persuade people to be violent. I mean, that's why armies have to have such training. They have to take, and in the past it was men, but now increasingly it's women, they have to take individuals from society who have no particular taste or inclination or wish to hurt or kill others, and they have to turn them into people who will obey orders to do so, which is why military training is so important and why detaching those who become military from society by putting them on bases, by not letting them go home on leave all that often, by making them wear uniforms, by making them look different. That is a way of turning them into people who will follow those orders to, to inflict organized violence on others. And so I think there's a real difference between the sort of lashing out out of fear and the purpose of violence that we see in war. First of all, to get those who are going to fight, I think, takes a great deal of organization. And then you have to choose the people who will fight, you have to train them to fight, you have to make sure that they'll obey orders. And as societies have become more complex and the technology has become more complex, the sheer amount of organization and making sure that your soldiers and your, of course, increasingly people in the air and people at sea have the equipment they need, have the supplies they need, have the logistics they need to get those supplies to them, have the factories at home that will make what's needed. I mean, this takes a huge amount of organization. If you think of the planning for D-Day, which took almost two years, you get a sense of what's involved to move often hundreds of thousands of combatants around and to make sure that they and their equipment get to the right place at the right time in the right order takes an enormous amount of organization. I mean, one of the reasons that states began to get better at things like managing their railways was because their military were pushing them to, to make sure that the railways did what the states wanted them to do and got the soldiers there at the right time. Um, even things like censuses, states began to count the number of people within their borders so they had some idea of who they could make into soldiers. And so when you start to think of the organization that's involved in war, you know, it is absolutely huge. Anyone who's ever tried to take just a group of people to a railway station or get them to the airport on time without losing their luggage will have a sense of what it means on a much bigger scale. Um, the ways in which war has caused changes in political organizations, certainly in the modern age, I and mean, it tends to be a bit different every but in the modern age, let's say from the 17th century onwards, what the need for organizing for war tended to do was make states much stronger. And, and you can see this particularly in Europe. Um, Europe for better or worse, became a model of both the strong state and of war-making capacity in the, in the modern age. And the state grew stronger. It began to acquire the ability to extract more of the resources of society and manage them. Of course, the stronger it grew, the more it could extract the resources of society and manage society, and, and so it went on. But the growth of modern bureaucracy 
has a great deal to do with the need to organize resources, uh, tax people, get people to fight wars. The British, for example, in the 18th century, depended on their navy for their safety to protect their trade and, and to stay in touch with what was an increasingly big empire. And so for the British, the Navy was a huge national investment and they wouldn't have been able to do it if they hadn't developed the institutional means to do it, if they hadn't developed the bureaucracy, if they hadn't developed a Bank of England, which could issue bonds to help extract money uh, from, from the citizens of Britain, if they hadn't developed a customs organization which could tax goods as they came in and out of the country. And so the sheer amount of organizing that war, increasingly modern war demands, also helped to build the strong state, which began to assume more and more control over society. I mean, a lot of the changes that came in war didn't disappear at the end of war. And so governments in the First World War, for example, developed the tools to direct resources in society to where they were needed, to control labor, to control the hours that people worked, um, even in the case of the British in the First World War, to, to control pub hours. Um, it was pub, 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 pubs closed after lunch in order that workers wouldn't just spend the whole afternoon sitting there drinking. And so the controls and the mechanisms for control that governments gained over society were often very much tied to the needs of war. And those controls didn't ever completely disappear once peace came again. Now, as far as social change goes, well, I think what we've seen in war, well, sometimes, of course, social change has been very dramatic indeed. I mean, nations, states that failed to protect their own people, failed to manage war efforts, often found themselves under attack, and both from outside, of course, but also from within. And I think, and of course it can be much debated, but I think that without the First World War, the Russians would not have had the revolutions that they had in 1917. I think it is quite possible that the Tsarist regime, which was beginning reluctantly, but being pushed to, to, to change, was beginning to change, was beginning to um, concede power um, increasingly to the Russian people through representative assemblies at the local level, but also through the Duma at the national level. And I think without the pressures of the First World War and, and the complete uh, collapse, really, of the Tsarist regime, we might not have seen the sorts of revolutions we had in Russia. But even in countries which survived major challenges of major wars, social change, I think, was huge. In Britain, in January 1918, as the First World War was, was still going on, it wasn't going to end until the autumn, the British government passed the Representation of People Act and that gave, for the first time, the vote to working-class men and gave the vote to all women over 30. And without the war and without the recognition that working-class men and women um, had contributed hugely to the war effort, I think that change might not have come. And so social change, changes in the position of women in society, for example, or changes in the position of labor, or indeed outright revolution, I think, have been produced by war. And economic change as well, um, increasing government control over society, um, governments taking an increasing share of the public wealth, and sometimes beneficial, as with the social changes. A very influential book, and I think a very interesting book by Walter Scheidel, called The Great Leveler, argues that major wars will often serve to compress the poles, the gaps um, between those who are very rich and those who are very poor, because the very rich have to pay up and governments need to support the very poor because they need them for the war effort. And so we've seen greater social equality, he argues, and, and I find it um, a very persuasive argument, and, and Thomas Piketty argues it as well. We've seen greater social equality 
in a number of countries, in Western countries, also in Japan, during and after the first two world wars than we've seen at most other times in, in, in history. And that has been, uh, the leveling effect of war, I think, has been something that has brought enormous social and economic change.